Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining me today. Christina Bauer with the Texas Slime Alliance. <laughs> Hi, Christina. Thanks for the invite. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's really great to see you and uh, thanks for joining us. I wanted to uh, discuss a couple of hot topics with you today about your book and uh, what you've been working on since then. Uh, but first, I'd like to go over an introduction for our audience about you. Chris Newby is an award-winning science writer and the senior producer of the Lyme disease documentary, Under Our Skin, which premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival, Festival and was a 2010 Oscar semifinalist. She has two degrees in engineering, a bachelor's degree from the University of Utah and a master's degree from Stanford University. Previously, she was a technology writer for Apple and other Silicon Valley companies, and she currently lives in Palo Alto. So welcome again, and thanks for meeting with us today. I uh, wanted to go over a couple of questions with you. Um, the first thing is the obvious burning question is, why did you write the book Bitten? which was excellent, by the way. Thanks. Um, in 2002, my husband and I and our two boys in middle school went to Martha's Vineyard for a week's vacation. And uh, we had a great time there. Went sailing to this sort of obscure island off Martha's Vineyard, which uh, in the past was a military target practice. <laughs> and anyways, we went back to California. And a week later, my husband and I were sicker than we'd ever been. And that sort of started that uh, changed the course of my life in ways I never could have anticipated. But my husband and I got sicker than we'd ever been before. And we uh, went to our primary care physician who we didn't know very well because we were so healthy. And uh, they told us, oh, you're sick, but it's probably just a summer flu virus, go mm -hmm. away and come back if you're still sick in a week or two. And a couple of days later, we just said, we are like really seriously sick. Uh, you know, classic flu symptoms, but so weak and muscle achy and fevers and night sweats that I had to crawl on my hands and knees on the, up the stairs just to get to my bedroom. Uh, yeah. Back in a few days. And they said, no, it's just a virus. I consulted with the head of infectious diseases. You're fine. And, you know, so that's just started this year long um, falling into the medical abyss with an undiagnosed disease. And you know, because I'm an engineer, I'm super organized and I had lists of symptoms and when they started and um, everyone. So it, we saw 10 doctors in a year and it cost us probably $60,000 uh, top line for to get diagnosed with two tick-borne diseases, Lyme disease and babesiosis. And, you know, along the way, every one of those doctors I saw, I said, you know, we were in Martha's Vineyard. It was like the number one state for Lyme disease, can you test us for Lyme disease? And the first eight doctors go, no, you know, it's a rare disease and it doesn't present with the symptoms you have, you know? Right. And, uh, you know, six months into the disease, we were just completely, my husband and I were completely disabled. I couldn't work anymore. My husband was faking it because we needed medical insurance to figure out what was wrong. Cause we, <laughs> at some point we were silently thinking we're dying and we're gonna leave our kids for orphans. Um, you know, and finally sort of the breaking point was my community physician, chief of infectious diseases says, um, uh, you know, you guys, uh, and he's an infectious diseases guys, you have a psychosomatic couples thing and, you oh know, my God. applying that, 
I'm a hypochondriac trying to get attention from my husband who's a successful Silicon Valley exec. And I was faking the symptoms so that I could get attention from my husband. And my husband was feeling sympathy pains, you know. And at that point we had, uh, you know, pretty much every organ system was screaming at us. We had irritable bowel, uh, chronic fatigue, early onset Alzheimer's, you know, our, our brains were not working. And, you know, then I went to, the, I said, I quit that doctor and I went to the academic medical center in my neighborhood and um, the infectious diseases guys there tested us for every disease known to man pretty much and finally ordered a Lyme test after almost a year and it came up positive for me and a positive Eliza and then uh, I went back in and they they were hiding the results from me and I said but what about the Lyme test and he goes oh 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 yeah, and he pulls it out like he was trying to hide it. Oh, that was that was positive, but that's a really bad test, you know. Oh and uh, he says, "Yeah, it's a bad test." And so, you know, I was that was the first positive test we'd had since the beginning of our ordeal. And I went home and I just googled on CDC, and it said, "Well, if you get a positive Eliza, you have to do a positive Western blot." So I called him back and I said, "Hey, you didn't do this." next step. And they said, Oh, Oh, and they pretended like they didn't know that. And they tested again and it was positive again, but then they, they fired us as patients. They said, I'm sorry, we just don't have the tools here to treat people like you. <laughs> you know? wow. and, it, and it was because uh, that university hospital had an unwritten policy. We don't treat chronic Lyme patients. Uh, and, you know, they didn't want to risk their political careers to treat us for a disease. It didn't matter that their symptomology and their, you know, their, their attitudes took an easily treatable disease in both of us to a chronic disease that would take, you know, five or six years for us to get over a lot of out of pockets expenses, but you know, they didn't want to risk their careers to treat us. So anyways, luckily I went online with groups like yours, you know, that just save people every day. Thank you. Um, you know, you tell them, get a second opinion. We did. We found a, an experienced Lyme doctor in our neighborhood um, and went to her. And then we were on the road to recovery. It was longer than we ever would have imagined. But, uh, you know, now we are back to normal lives. So I would just say that to people in the middle of it. Have hope, have faith. You know, there's better treatments every day, like the disulfiram. Um, so keep the faith, be patient. And don't stick with a doctor that's not treating you with respect and working with you to get you better. Oh, that's excellent. My heart just goes out to you and your husband for what y'all have been through. We have been through that times five. Um, it's been very difficult, especially here in Texas. A little bit about me. I'm the director of Texas Lyme Alliance, just for the audience. I know you know this. Uh, I have a um, Facebook group. It's called the Disulfiram Experience for Lyme support group and disulfiram has been a game changer for a lot of people, but it does need to be used with caution. So I have also started um, two websites to try and get out these interviews that I do with um, Lyme disease clinicians who are experts in utilizing the therapy disulfiram. So we also have a lot of treatment guidance from those experts and a pharmacologist who has experience with Lyme disease and mental health, which Lyme disease is a 
uh, central nervous system and brain infections. So she comes in handy quite often helping with some non-medical guidance. She is retired. So uh, none of us do make um, you know medical recommendations for anybody. I certainly never pretend to be a doctor. I'm just a mom who's been through this experience over eight long years, but it did take us like you, took us years and um, took me 30 years, uh, 32 to be exact, to get a proper diagnosis and doctors from all over. But um, I just want to reiterate what you had said to our audiences. I really don't have the aches and pains and joint aches and all that that I used to have, but same, same as you, I was early onset Alzheimer's, fibromyalgia, um, I was actually diagnosed with Crohn's disease after a bowel obstruction perforated through, almost died in Las Vegas um, right before Mother's Day. So that was crazy news for Mom's Day to my mom. But nonetheless, you, you were getting better. breakfast in bed, but for the wrong reasons. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just wanted to reiterate what you said that keep the hope for you guys out there listening to. Um, us talking about how we've gotten better. It, support group is real, real important. And Facebook groups, as silly as it might sound to clinicians and researchers and experts are life-saving. And these moms and other parents who have gone through treating their children and gotten them better, it's real important that people reach out to people who understand rather than relying on family and friends who just aren't ever going to get it unless they do you know, get Lyme disease. So um, keep the faith and have the hope because if we did it, you guys can do it too. And um, it does take time and money. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your book. There was uh, some conversation circling around uh, Representative Chris Smith from New, New Jersey, who amended the annual DOD budget bill to call for an investigation into the tick weaponization program that you so eloquently lay out. Whatever happened with that investigation? Well, um, what happened is my book came out in hardbound a year, year and a half ago about. And as soon as, well, Chris Smith is in New Jersey, which is at sort of ground zero of the epidemic. Yeah. It broke out in the late 60s. And now it's a, a serious health problem for his district. So he read the book and he, <laughs> unbeknownst to me, he waved it around C-SPAN and he was in the middle of the DO, Department of Defense budget process. And he says, wow, this book has shocking allegations. It's very well-researched, it's credible. Mm -hmm. And if the United States government in the Cold War bioweapons program experimented with ticks and other arthropods, eight-legged creatures, um, weaponizing them and doing open-air experiments, we need to investigate it and reveal it. Uh, so that sort of exploded my world because that was a news bite it was before all the Trump craziness and everyone around the world was calling me up. But uh, anyways, you know, I thought it was great because all these experiments happened, you know, this crazy, crazy three tick-borne diseases showed up in 1968 around Long Island, Connecticut, New York, Massachusetts. So the three crazy bugs were, um, of course, Lyme arthritis, uh, which you know, Burley Rudorferi, that spirochete or a, a cousin of it has been around since the ice ages in Europe, but for some reason, yeah. weird, strange. Setup. And then on Long Island, there was an anomalous spotted fever. That's spotted fever is the most deadly tick-borne disease in the U.S. And um, 
uh, a weird strain showed up that the Lyme discover Willie Bergdorfer I flagged and it was killing people, but it didn't test positive to the known rickettsia spotted fever sort of organisms. And then there's Babesia, which um, was the disease that's near and dear to me because I had it and it's a bad disease. Or we all had it too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, it causes air hunger and inflammation of your whole vascular system. Uh, it's a lot of the headachey stuff that you get. And you really, you, you can't, I don't think you can get rid of it ever. Uh, you can't, you and I can't give blood now, for example. But anyways, right. that cattle, it was a cattle born parasite. And it was first in man around that time, the, um, around the late 60s. It showed up around Massachusetts where I got it. And it had only been identified in man five other places. This was the second place in the US. So it was a weird outbreak. So right. <laughs> Anyways, back to Chris Smith. You know, I researched my book Bitten on the secret history of Lyme disease and how we used insects in the weaponized weaponization program. And there were a lot of open air tests without any kind of security. There were lab breaches, um, accidents, and I haven't been able to get those documents during the five years of research in my book. So it was great that he was calling for a disclosure of those documents. Um, and it will, you know, the important thing about that is the question is, you know, has, have those experiments affected humans, you know, the, those accidents and, when they did open air experiments, where did they do them? What were the organisms that they released? And in the development of those weaponized insects, what measures did they research to protect their soldiers that might benefit us now? So it would save us current research dollars to have that information out. You know, the people who ordered those experiments are dead now mostly. So let's, let's shine the light on these experiments. So anyways, that was, the idea, but um, that investigation got pulled in December in the middle of the post-election craziness. So it's a dead end. Oh <laughs> no. Still, um, but Chris Smith is talking about um, trying to pass it as a standalone investigation, a bill. So we'll see. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Um, yeah. He has been a uh, pretty great advocate for Lyme disease patients and Susan Collins and the Kay Hagen Tick Act has done some good for us. And we're hoping with the uh, new appropriations that were funded for uh, 2021 that we worked on with the Center for Lyme Action in 2020, that we get some new researchers um, to show up at the table and submit grants because there's a lot of new money coming out for Lyme disease research. And so I really encourage anyone listening um, who may know of a researcher or who is a researcher to submit those grants to try and get those uh, funds for persistent Lyme disease research and what's happened around um, the epidemic because we are at pandemic proportions now. I think the CDC has just put out their new estimation at 476,000 new cases a year, uh, but because of faulty testing, there was a study done in 2005 that identified the Lyme disease testing uh, to be 61% uh, false negatives. 
So I think the 476,000 is very low case count with new infection rates every year. The CDC says that it is likely 10 times that. So it would be great to see some of this stuff as far as the investigation with Chris Smith and these new research dollars to circle around identifying the problem, solving the problem, and preventing new problems from other people getting sick and infected. So uh, I just have to say, your book is amazing, and I don't want to forego mentioning that to the audience. This isn't a marketing spiel to sell your book, but so be it. It's excellent. Everyone who has any um, relationship to ticks, tick-borne illness, definitely would do themselves a favor by reading it. I got it on Audible and listened to it within two days twice. <laughs> wow. Twice within like two, two and a half days. I don't know how I did that, but it was just like a, I just couldn't get enough because when you start really diving into your book, it's laid out so well that you really just can't believe what's happened. And the denial um, is is quite significant all the way throughout that you outline so well. It's very clearly written and and it is very well researched. So I thought it was really great at um, one of the last conferences that we saw each other at, I guess it was maybe Live Lime in Colorado. Yeah, Colorado, yeah. Okay, so do you remember the gentleman who started kind of questioning you that was sitting at the table with you, the older gentleman, and you were like, I loved how you addressed it. I was I take this with me from that day. You said something like, uh, I see I've got you thinking. And I thought, God, she's so good. Instead of like, oh gosh, what do I say? You were like, thumbs up, dude. Uh, I've got you thinking and that's really great. And that's uh, spurring conversation around tick-borne illness, what's happened around the weaponization of insects and how it's gotten out is very similar relating to uh, the COVID situation um, coming out of China that uh, we don't really know exactly. So I don't want to circle too much around that idea, but the problems around both of them are pretty identical. The treatments, um, pretty well, yeah, identical. The, yeah. I mean, the central question of the book when I started the research is I get a confession from Willie Bergdorfer, I, or Bergdorfer, who first identified the Lyme spirochete and they said, oh, all this illness in this, you know, Lyme Connecticut area is caused by this one germ, uh, you know, one and done, two weeks antibiotics cure it, you know. So the central question of the book is when I, he finally said, yeah, there were other organisms that we discovered at ground zero, but we were told to sweep them under the rug. And that had weighed heavily on his conscience. And so the central question is like, well, what were the other germs? And could that explain why 15 to 20% of people who supposedly just have Lyme go on to become chronically ill? You know, is it the persistence of this Lyme spirochete or is it the Lyme spirochete, you know, the germ gangbang of the other germs with it. And so because he emitted that really important scientific information and you could tell it bugged him, you know, did we close the door on a really important, you know, path for research? So I was hoping that the book would not polarize as much as many of the other things in the Lyme world have done in the past, but it would spark the curiosity of scientists. Well, you know, 
what is this thing that Willie covered up? And, you know, is it a rickettsia? Is it something else? Um, and so, I mean, I have run across a lot of scientists who've read it and, you know, it's like, oh, that's an interesting research question. Let's, let's look into that, which is good. And then it also informs Lyme patients. It isn't just Lyme, you know, you need to really explore the Lyme co-infections. And if you that's go to right. just your primary care physician, they'll say Babesia, what, <laughs> you know, anaplasma, what? <laughs> so you need to need an experienced captain to, you know, guide you through these treacherous waters. <laughs> yeah. Keep digging. I yeah. think is what, yeah. Summing all that up is that's exactly right. Is work with somebody who's not going to be satisfied with, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, I say in this uh, situation, doctors take an oath to do no harm and my response to that is, uh, well, doing nothing is doing harm. Right. Yeah, and we, that's what we all get is, is unexplained hypochondria or crazy or psychosomatic, whatever you want to call it. It's in your head. People are, are told that all along. And I was even told um, for years and years, you're the healthiest sick person that I know. And I dread seeing you on my schedule. Um, she put her head in her hands and laughed. And but that's not a good thing to tell a patient who can't get the help that they need that you dread seeing them on the schedule. And what she meant by that was she doesn't know how to help me. So as she was putting her head in her hands, so was I. <laughs> Maybe that's a good time to bring up the research term that's such a farce and, and I think causing a lot of this blocking of the access to care for patients is definitely a, around research and the use of the term post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome or PTLDS. Do you have any comment around how that term is being used in research that is also being conflated into uh, blocking access to care for patients as it has been conflated as an actual diagnosis on CDC and IH? If you click on the references at the bottom of the um, websites, it takes you to research for MUS, which is unexplained symptoms. Can you clarify in your own perspective? Yeah. How you, I know that's a mouthful. I just spouted <laughs> off. But well, I mean, like you, like you, I'm pretty offended by the term, the invented large string of uh, alphabet soup, the post treatment Lyme disease syndrome. And I, especially the word syndrome, bee, 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 you know, inflames my emotions because syndrome implies there's not a root cause to the disease. You know, if right. you have a disease, you test positive for it, you treat it with the drug that's supposed to help you, which is some sort of antibiotic and you get better. And then you stop that and your symptoms come back, then it's probably the same thing. Don't call it a syndrome. Uh, don't say that we patients just enjoy being sick and we love going to the doctors and spending a lot of money that way and not working. Um, I love the quote, ask a healthy person what their dreams are and they'll tell you a thousand, but a sick person has just one dream, you know, just get back to normal. Just get better. So, um, you know, I really, what drove me to do the documentary under our skin, which you can watch for free if you have an Amazon prime my husband and I got sick when I was in the middle of recovery. So I was still sick when I did this. I helped and this very talented filmmaker, Annie um, Abrahams Wilson, do this documentary. And 
what drove me is I just don't understand what I'm seeing as a sort of a logical engineer and a tech writer. The symptoms that I saw in the field when I was researching that documentary, which are thousands of really sick people, and then what was in the medical literature, it's like so vastly different. And the established researchers who got all the NIH money, they were really expressing that Lyme disease is overdiagnosed and two to four weeks of doxycycline will cure it. And, and their symptom set was so narrow. I mean, like, so, I mean, what, what I really did in that film was dig down and I followed the money. So what I found is this original group of researchers who published widely about the disease. They said, uh, it's easy to treat, easy to cure. They were all involved in a vaccine trial. And in that vaccine trial, how could you possibly create a vaccine, a rigorous scientific vaccine trial, if you're dealing with a messy disease with a symptom set that hits every organ of the body, especially the neurological system, ill-defined, and oh, by the way, the test isn't very good. So you can't possibly run a vaccine trial. So I, I feel like those original researchers were on the take in that they were invested in the success of this vaccine. It certainly enriched them and their universities. So they sort of got stuck in this lie. And then now those um, researchers, a lot of them hold really senior positions in their universities and they don't want to say, Oh, uh, sorry, I was wrong. It is, it can be chronic, the symptoms um, and uh, the test isn't that great. And oh, by the way, we have patents on, you know, some of them had patents on those tests. Personal patents, that's right. Right, right. So, and even the CDC did because the CDC changes that happened right around when the Lyme disease was discovered, CDC and the researchers involved in the, the test development could receive up to $140,000 a year in royalties. So, you know, Everybody was financially invested in uh, in the lie. I mean, I would say it was another big lie. So now we're stuck with that definition from the 90s when the vaccine was released and, and then pulled, uh, even though it was pulled. So we're stuck with the test that uses the markers that were, the, the markers that were significant in the vaccine, they're pulled out. So we have a very insensitive test. So anyways, that's what the film was about, was sort of it at a high level went into the, the explanation of how money and ego sort of set the science off on the wrong path. And what we really need is a reset. And even Willie Bergdorfer said that we need uh, to start over again with the science. Um, when did he make that assumption? That's been decades ago, but can you remember? Well, I, I was reading my uh, interview notes with him last night. So that was February 3rd, 2007 where he said, we need to give research money to the people who don't know the answers to their research questions before they start the research. And he said, the Lyme disease research is a shameful affair. So, you know, what the project I'm working on now is sort of analyzing where the grant money has gone for the last decade. And I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah. To try to explain it to outsiders. I mean, the thing I hate the most for people who don't have Lyme disease is, well, if there's a bad test, why don't they fix it? <laughs> you know? It's like, oh, how long do you have? Just watch this film. But, um, yeah. So I, I just recently went through the last five years of NIH Lyme research, and I actually read the abstracts and the proposals for 335 research 
projects that are being funded. And wow. even I was just appalled at the what the results are. So, you know, we have all these really chronically ill people. So of the last five years of the, I think, $135 million that went into research, only 1% of those research dollars are going to treatments for the sick people, only 1%. And a lot of it's going to making mice healthy who have Lyme disease in the labs, you know, 1% is going to treatments. And I just think that is completely wrong and we need to fix that. And it's because we bought into the lie that two to four weeks of antibiotics will cure these people with really complicated diseases. I, I was listening to your interview with Dr. Kinderlayer, who uh, has a lot of the really sickest people who have messy, messy and very sensitive patient group. Yeah. And I just, uh, my heart went out to them because he has such a hard job. And I wish a lot of the naysayer physicians could watch that to know that, you know, these doctors, yeah, there's some quacks out there, but most of these doctors are just stuck with these patients and it's a, uh, it's really frustrating for them, like you said, and they just want to get their patients better. Yeah. And um, it's not remiss to mention that he is a Lyme patient himself and in part two discusses his own personal journey with not getting the proper care early on. He uh, tested positive, CDC positive twice, not once, still couldn't get the care he needed and was a physician calling physicians for help. So it's real important for people to hear, like, we can't scream this louder from the rooftops. This is science suppression. This term PTLDS is a cover-up of a very messy situation. And um, we have to start resetting research agendas and calling out those people who are new researchers looking to start establishing themselves um, in, in research. Okay, I finally found it. If y'all see me digging on my computer, I am. Uh, the uh, active NIH research projects related to Lyme disease as of January 2021 pretty much tell the story. There's only been one research grant granted um, on treatment, and it was only for $112,360. Neurologic, uh, only one research grant, co-infections, four research grants on persistence, four, that's it, arthritis, seven, immunology, six, tick and host control, 19, diagnostics, 14, vaccine, 13, and basic general research, 58 grants, totaling 27,353,416 dollars for a total of 47% of all of the research grants conducted were on basic research. Number two being vaccine, the least of those being treatment and number three diagnostics. But as we know, it's so poorly defined that that money's likely been wasted. Um, we still to date don't have a good diagnostic tool or treatment. So um, it's completely beyond me why the two things that could solve this problem are getting the least funding and the diagnostics being 
number three most funded in Lyme disease research grants. So I, I wanted to break in and talk about the problem with the diagnostic testing is um, yeah, good. in the U.S. we have no good test for right. the first month because it's all antibody testing and it takes your body about three weeks to develop a, antibody, an antibody yeah. levels that can actually be measured. I, I further analyzed how much in the last five years, like where the what kind of diagnostics they're working on. And it's mostly antibody testing. So it's just the same approach that hasn't worked so far. And, you know, where that might work with a strep or something like that, uh, we're talking about people with multiple tick-borne diseases and a lot of them, their immune systems are working overtime fighting multiple infections. So their antibodies are tied up in these sort of like fur balls that aren't detected with these very, very specific one pathogen tests. So I think it was like 35% are antibody tests. The biggest chunk is going to antibody tests. And, you know, I, I, I was a science writer at Stanford for almost 10 years, and there are just a lot of really exciting direct detection technologies now that will test for DNA. So the PERPs, you know, the the organisms are actually causing the disease. And like, why haven't we moved on to this really crude antibody approach? And a lot of it is because those original researchers have patents, their original patents on antibody testing ran out, but now they've made new ones. That's right. <laughs> they, they filed for new patents. So we need to let the new blood come in, the people that know genomics and <laughs> so. And so that's important to mention the genomics as I think a, a big picture of it that really goes denied. But um, this all leads me to that second question. Those main authors that you're talking about are being called to, to the floor in the uh, law room of the Tory versus IDSA trial, where I wanted to mention the most important thing here is I heard it for years. There's no Lyme in Texas. And even when I go to advocate here in Texas, which kind of stopped wasting my time because I was driving to Austin uh, four plus hours for to sit in a chair and have the person I was speaking to watch the clock, not listen to me, plead for help for my kids. And, you know, the, the science is being suppressed by these original Lyme authors for the IDSA guidelines starting in 2000, which we just got new ones from them in 2020 that are the exact same. Nothing's changed. There's still a denial of congenital Lyme, which I have four here in my home, but I see it all the time with patients that I help on my forum and others that it's really prevalent. And um, the denying that fact, along with the fact that this Tory versus IDSA lawsuit is talking about what's happened here. And eight major insurance companies have settled out of court. Uh, people who are innocent do not do that. They don't do that. They mm -hmm. prove they're innocent and then we move on. They didn't do that. They settled financially out of court. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the Tory, the Tory versus IDSA case um, filed by 21 chronic Lyme patients against the IDSA and six authors of the IDSA Lyme treatment guidelines in the insurance companies? The suit essentially charges that the six Lyme researchers have been in cahoots with the insurance companies to deny appropriate 
medical treatment to patients with Lyme disease. All the insurance companies has settled out of court, as I mentioned, but the ITSA and the six defendants will go to trial uh, sometime in September of 2021. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how these same people are, thank God, being called to task to uh, be held accountable, hopefully, and in some level of transparency with what's transpired with this test and why they're being called to prove themselves innocent. Yeah, so they, um, there are 21 plaintiffs, so um, Lyme patients who were mistreated, misdiagnosed, um, and it sounds like they have pretty good, strong cases witnessed by all the insurance companies settling. But the, I think it was six or seven of the physician researchers uh, I think all of them were involved in one of the three IDSA treatment guidelines that have been published. There was um, 2006 and now 2020, and there was one before that. So they're very invested in that. And IDSA is paying their legal fees. And so you have oh, to ask. That's an important thing that I didn't realize. Yeah. So why is that? Well, what is IDSA? It's Infectious Diseases Society of America. Uh, they are sort of match.com for big pharma and uh, academic researchers to, you know, bring those two together. You have a drug, you need it tested. Here's an infectious disease doctor that will help you with that research. So it's, um, you know, it's about money, I think. And well, they're uh, a private it, society, right? They're a private society. Like a, like a corporation. And, Right. And the way IDSA makes money is Big Pharma buys really expensive ads in the journals that they publish. And, uh, you know, the Lyme guidelines people easily publish in the, their journals. And they hold really expensive conferences where the Big Pharma buys overpriced booths so they can reach these prescribers, the infectious disease doctors, and market their drugs. So, uh, it's a publishes last I checked, it was like 50 or 60 guidelines for various diseases. So it's a way you have a busy frontline physicians with a patient with a disease. It's a way to market their drugs to patients, this whole ecosystem. So for them to have these upstart feisty patients overturn one of their guidelines, that's, that's just appalling. And they don't want to set a precedence that patients can demand to have guidelines that harm them removed. So, I mean, one thing I, I saw while I was in an academic institution is patients are getting more power. They, they are getting on committees. The NIH is realizing you need to have the patient perspective on how their tax dollars are spent to cure the diseases that they have. It can't just be up to these ivory tower researchers to decide where the money goes. Oh, they need to pay the salaries of their postdocs and they need to bring in a certain amount of money to their universities to keep their lab bunches, benches in their tenured positions. So, you know, it's all about getting patients better. And what we've seen in Lyme disease is that these academic researchers who are, have an agenda now their agenda is they don't want to get sued for malpractice by everyone they've ever mistreated. So that's part of what's going on. <laughs> that's a really excellent account. Thank you for that. It's um, pretty astonishing to me that people don't realize that a lot of these same doctors who are in charge are the original Lyme authors to 
the ITSA guidelines and are being sued. You know, that there's a lot of inertia what's that's going on because a lot of the people who still control the research dollars, they have impressive CVs that weigh about two pounds and they get all the grants and um, they control the information because they have such impressive resumes. They can get in the top journals. They can sit in on NIH scientific review committees where they dole out the money that Congress gives them according to their discretion. It's all about control. They're on, they sit on these committees like the Tickborn Working Group. And, you know, they all have about since they're in their seventies, they're maybe not on the top of their research game. They have, you know, 200 or 300 papers that say Lyme is easy to treat and cure. There's no chronic Lyme. Hey, there's no insurance code for chronic Lyme. It must not exist. And the insurance company, and they, some of them consult with the insurance companies to deny claims of people with really expensive Lyme or tick-borne disease cases. So there's just a lot of reasons to stay the course. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. And I'd love to throw in right now the fact that I just did a recent interview with Jenna Luce Thayer, who's Mm -hmm. a human rights expert. She Herculean the effort of getting 11 new ICD codes for Lyme disease approved by the World Health Organization. So we do now have 15 ICD codes for Lyme disease when we go to the doctor that eventually hopefully will you know, show up in, in the doctor's office in their drop-down box when they don't understand what they're looking at, when they're looking at patients like you and I, they can get some assistance with diagnostic codes for what it is that they're looking at. And then patients can eventually get the insurance coverage that that's passed into federal law. So that interview is really key. I just released part two and three yesterday. So that's on my YouTube channel. If you guys just type Christina Bauer, Texas Lime Lions, it should come up, but it's really powerful to mention that um, these people are going down and they're going down hard, hopefully sooner than later, but it's all coming to light within this Tory versus ITSA within getting more information and awareness out about the new ICD codes. You know, each one of those codes, I asked her, uh, Jenna, how, you know, how did you get one code, for instance, accepted formally into the World Health Organization? And she said, it takes mounds upon mounds of peer-reviewed and validated studies to back that code up. You can't just, you know, send them a letter and say, hey, we have this problem, we need a code. It's a lot of science that goes behind each one of those codes. But the uh, congenital line code was challenged by someone in Canada and it was removed with um, without proper process and denying the science. So uh, we're hoping to get that reinstated, but This is an international problem. Um, When you said in the United States earlier for our audience, this is being denied all over the world um, as a persistent problem that patients are left to uh, fend for themselves and seek medical care. And then the physicians are not, in my opinion, are not at fault because they don't wanna lose their licenses and be red flagged. Um, I have Lyme doctors all the time on my personal list that I help patients find that are experienced in treating persistent Lyme symptoms, but 
they don't want to be advertised and we can't talk about them and mention their names on our forums, et cetera. Um, but that's all for a reason. It's they get red flagged and um, they get harassed and then they get, you know, written up for things like, um, uh, you know, their paperwork's out of order or, you know, never mind that they're helping, you know, cure cancer and cure Lyme disease and, you know, get rid of the hard stuff. But it seems to be um, very clear to me that we do need to continue to encourage new researchers to come into this field of infectious disease and uh, continue to prove um, validating those studies since uh, 1988 on congenital Lyme, persistent Lyme, that just like syphilis, it's its cousin, it exists. And we have to keep you know, bringing up awareness and talking about how and why and what are we going to do? What do you think patients can do to support these efforts like yours and um, Lisa Torrey's lawsuit um, that we can start encouraging new researchers to submit for requests for those grants? Um, I think uh, letters to your congressional rep representatives help. And, yes. you know, I think we have a really good ecosystem of Lyme foundations now. They each have their own uh, wheelhouse. Um, the new Lyme Action Group in D.C. is helping uh, with the lobbying effort. Which Center is for good. Lyme Action. Yes, yeah. Center for Lyme Action. So, you know, participating in those uh, petitions is important. Here, you know, just letting the patient voices be heard. Um, I like LymeDisease.org for patient information on how to uh, fight for insurance coverage for, you know, coverage for your real disease that you need help with. And then there's just some really good research organizations too, like Bay Area Lyme Foundation and GLA, Global Lyme Alliance are really filling in for where the NIH has failed us as far as uh, more research on patient cures and treatments and diagnostics. So Absolutely. any way you can, any way you can support them is good. Yeah. Whether it's financially or sharing fundraisers or, mm -hmm. um, you know, people say that all the time to me, I'm too sick to help. And I always think, you know, well, you're typing to me right now, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, that's the same thing that you'll do in going to your website, your legislator's website and just type that's all. Um, so whether you're cognitively challenged because of Lyme disease or fatigued or whatever those symptoms are that you're suffering from, we did too. But when you can, I, I try not to push people that are debilitated by this disease because, right. you know, it's definitely a, a very uh, raw, emotional, you know, a psychological sometimes challenge that you do feel helpless and hopeless because sometimes you have a hard time getting to the bathroom or feeding yourself hand to mouth. Uh, how am I going to get my voice to be heard? And this is a really easy way when people can, and then you can um, just send them an email, let them know your story. doesn't have to be long and rocket science and hard and all that. It just needs to uh, reflect the challenges that, that the audience out there has experience just like you and I have and your husband and my kids. Um, we were told that our first pediatrician before I got diagnosed 
every time I'd call or go in that it was a virus, here's a prescription. If they're not better in three days, fill it and call me. Yeah. You know, it's like, when do they start getting better? How do I do that? So I just want people out there to know, like Chris Newby and myself and my family and her husband, we all started where people are out there. Uh, square one, not understanding what to do or how to do it. But that's a really great start is awareness and talking about the problem that you've experienced out there. And um, there's a lot of us who are trying to, you know, make this problem go away, but it's going to take all of us communicating. I just spoke with, well, he's a um, legislator here in Texas is, is all I'll say right now, because we're still in conversations about it. But, you know, he said all the time, I hear uh, there's, there's no Lyme in Texas. Patients aren't telling us that there's a problem. So how are we going to fix it? And, you know, that's just not good enough. It's just not good enough, guys. So we've got to talk. Um, if you can type on Facebook to your support groups, you can type on a website and just let them know I'm sick and I'm not able to get the help I need or the insurance coverage I need for what's working. Um, if acne can get a year's worth of antibiotics, a cousin of syphilis should be also. And helping to prevent this from becoming a genera generational disease with uh, congenital Lyme would be a really great start. I, I'd, um, I'd like to compare it to AIDS. I mean, AIDS was, dis was identified in the same year as Lyme was, 81, 82. Uh, the, AIDS, the AIDS NIH research is 100 times what Lyme disease is. And now those people with a previously fatal disease can go because of the research that's gone into drug cocktails, uh, they can go on to lead a norm, a fairly normal life. Uh, versus Lyme disease, we don't even get acknowledgement that we have a real chronic disease. And uh, it, everyone agrees that if we had a good test like they do in AIDS, that works from the very beginning, there would be no issue. There would be no a controversy about chronic Lyme. You That's would right. treat it with a very simple, inexpensive, like $10 dose of antibiotics, and you can move on with your life and never think about it again. Instead, we, you know, after 35, 37 years, we have no accurate test, unlike AIDS. They're starving the research bu budget, and they're denying that these patients even have a disease. So it, we, we can do better. We can do better. We certainly can. It's 2021 and um, just turned February 2021. And so it's early in the year into um, that um, Lyme increase uh, for appropriations that we helped the Center for Lyme Action get. I'm a senior advocate with them. And I think they're doing a great job. We're starting to compete with, dare I say, the pharmaceutical world and the insurance world. These people have huge budgets for lobbying um, where, you know, we're really grassroots here. This is patients and um, donors and fundraisers for these great organizations who are helping to fund Center for Lyme Action and Barry Lyme, who's spearheaded that with um, Cohen's and um, I think it was Project Lyme. Uh, but these foundations are doing a great job. I started one not that long ago because I didn't like what I was seeing in Texas and we need to have better representation of um, making sure that patients' voices are being heard. And um, I think it's really great what's happening out there. We advocate 
at Texas Lyme Alliance for a treatment because that's the number one thing that's going to help my kids if they end up needing further treatment down the road. Um, and congenital Lyme and pediatric Lyme kids is uh, they're the highest infection rate in this population. So we have to help the kids and we have to help them have a treatment. So that's why I'm pushing um, to get information out for a safer use for disulfiram. I never recommend that it's going to be a silver bullet or a good, uh, you know, treatment for anyone. I never recommend a, a doctor, a clinic or a treatment. I don't. I advocate for all of it because at some point in time, the right combination is going to cross our path and it's going to be put out in your newest movie or newest book. And I know you're so brilliant about how you write these truths around science and this pandemic, because it is world over that something's going to kick and it's going to hit just the right button at just the right time. And I think it's going to be really powerful to 2020 is we've got a $91 million now uh, in Lyme appropriations budgeted for Lyme disease this year. We're advocating now for another increase in 2022. I probably won't get this edited fast enough in order to um, encourage people to sign up at centerforlimeaction.org on their events tab by Friday. But anything that people can do to take part in helping legislation and getting new researchers into this is hitting again on what you were saying about this old dogma of suppressing science and using the term post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome as a diagnosis. It's not a diagnosis. It's a, it's a falsity. I, you know, I think commenting on articles that are continue to spread the big lies about Lyme disease, you know, there was long haul COVID article last week in the New York times and they used the PTLSD acronym. Oh, no. Yeah. So just like threw the article down. <laughs> Um, but it is, I mean, to be fair, it is really hard for a journalist to dive into the Lyme world and know where the truth is that because the people with the power have the megaphones and it's just so confusing when you start going online and yeah, these patients, they just seem a little crazy and wacky and angry, you know, oh, I think I'll believe the people from Yale and Harvard instead. So you can see how they can write a little bit about it and say, whoa, this is too hot to handle. I'll move on to something less controversial. Yeah, I can't ruining them, but geez. Yeah, I mean, so that's, uh, you know, I am, I'm sort of, the Lyme thing has been exhausting. It wouldn't have been the path I chose for my writing career at all. But once I'm into it, I feel like I've gained a certain level of understanding of everything that's going on and I'm better equipped to explain it than other people. So I hope by sharing this information, I raise the level of journalism to correctly characterize what's going on. Yeah, you definitely do. And I wanted to also mention that that's like the second article now that I've heard come out of the New York Times that's conflated the fact that there's science suppression going on and denying persistence. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a real problem in journalism and the media, uh, you know, has to do their part to investigate on their own, not 
listen to what they're being told or what's at the top of the surface. They need to go a little bit deeper into looking at the details as to where it came from, who's maybe, um, you know, owning patents there on the ELISA test, that kind of stuff. Because those are the real facts that we need to keep talking about. Um, so, uh, man, thanks so much for bringing all that up because it is really a science issue that became overly politicized in a polarizing way mm -hmm. versus just sticking to the darn science. I mean, it's right. really not hard to just look at all of these studies on persistence that prove just like syphilis or, you know, anything else that persists like that. Uh, it's a science issue. So it's got to be solved through the science, in my opinion. You agree? It, absolutely. Absolutely. And the science is out there. It's just being cherry picked by the IDSA guidelines people. Um, I agree a hundred percent. So, you know, I would love to have been saying this for probably three years and maybe someday I'll say it to the right person who can do something about it. <laughs> Not pointing at you. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, uh, the Bay-Dole Act, do you know much about that? That sucker needs to go away or be washed and cleaned and refurbished and recycled and, you know, spit back out in the way that it's actually going to help patients. How do you feel about that? Um, I, I think it's funding our in research in institutions since it provides uh, like a conduit of money from pharma to the research institution. It's not going away. I mean, so, I mean, for people who don't know about that act, it, it just said that research institutions and the researchers can share in the royalties uh, for scientific discoveries that end up being turned into to treatments, diagnostics, and cures. And it really, in my film, I talk about this, but um, it, it meant that if you had a dangerous new disease and you discovered like a new treatment or a diagnostic, you've partnered with big pharma and all of a sudden that discovery became intellectual property and it had to be hidden and kept secret. So you didn't have the sharing of this information with other scientists that could exponentially increase the rate of you know, advancement. So I think it slowed down science a lot in the name profits. That's right. Uh, conflicts so, of interest. Conflicts is, of interest. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, summation of all of this trouble is there are too many conflicts of interest allowed where it should have never been allowed. And that's in the best interest of our healthcare system. If it's not allowed in banking or other industries, why is it allowed in the healthcare industry that's dictating how fast or whether we ever do recover from these chronic infections? And, and if you look at the new it's a Lyme treatment guidelines that were published in 2020, uh, a lot of those lead authors on that are involved in this malpractice lawsuit. Exactly. Yeah. So, and it's and, and, and to it, like that is definitely conflict because they are going to do everything they can to protect their um, uh, view of the disease, which is it's easy to treat, easy to cure, and it's not chronic and to save their bacon on malpractice suits. So how can that not be a conflict? How can you allow that to happen? I think you can have researchers in the lab who partner with pharma and, and 
you know, that's called translational research, pushing out cures and diagnostics. That's good. Mm -hmm. But you can't then be the leaders in recommending those tests and treatments if you're profiting from them. So that's the key distinction, you know, choose your lane, but you can't have it all because that is a conflict of interest and it's harming science. It is harming science and it's really sad. Um, the the two things that I learned from working with Jenna Luce there over the years, um, transparency and accountability, that has to be at the forefront of science and any anything that is around science, whether it's government interaction, insurance interaction, pharmaceutical interaction, or the medical societies and um, communities, uh, it has to be, uh, transparency and accountability. If you have to hide somewhere uh, that this research is being conflated as truth or, or you know, even false, then you should be able to talk about it publicly and show people um, where you get this from and what science and, and um, transparency and accountability in science has to be brought back to the forefront of research because it's not, it's not, it's, it's political, it's about money, it's about conflicts of interest, that Bayh-Dole Act has to be amended is the right word. Some way, somehow that has to be done. I call on all legislators for years now. Something has to be done with allowing conflicts of interest within our research and medical world because that's what's keeping people sick. Um, And that's how we end up getting um, a crappy test and a crappy vaccine and no treatments and a harmful term like PTLDS that's blocking the access to care. I think one thing that's been heartening about the COVID pandemic is how all the scientists rallied and pushed, pushed out their research early on, you know, and shared it early on because of the urgency of that. Uh, And we had a glimpse of a world without that act, you know, because it was sharing and it wasn't protecting patents and taking your time to get things through the very, uh, uh, Byzantine FDA approval process. So um, uh, hopefully the COVID pandemic will break through some of these ba- traffic barriers t- to making progress in science. I believe uh, it 100%. <laughs> I really do. I've been um, talking to uh, people that I work with and advocate with that uh, trying to find strategies and how we can all come together to make that happen because um, this is such a deadlier disease than Lyme disease. Of course, you can keel over with being undiagnosed from something like Lyme carditis and not even knowing that you have Lyme disease um, and it affects the heart like that. But with COVID, there's so many people dying so quickly that they really push, push, pushed um, the science to the envelope. And I'm just so grateful for all those researchers that have put science first and called out when people aren't. And of course, all the health heroes out there, we have to thank them and uh, hats off to every single one of them who are, um, you know, putting, putting their job before their family is something, you know, uh, I am totally against in my own home, but man, oh man, is that fantastic what these people have done around COVID. And I just encourage so many people out there who might 
see this as an avenue, I think is what you're saying, a, a path for getting the right help and following what has been achieved in COVID so quickly that we can do this for Lyme disease. And so many people are. Um, I like to always end on a positive note in my interviews. And I think that's a really great thing is, is that maybe we can all, you know, God bless all those families that have lost loved ones to COVID and Lyme as well. But maybe we can utilize some of this as a good thing or the silver lining to a really awful and tragic situation in both regards, Lyme and COVID, that maybe we can cross this, you know, research threshold of um, inflammation, uh, whether, you know, it's a virus or, you know, Borrelia or Babesiosis or Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. It, it, it doesn't matter to a patient. It matters right. that we, you know, we get the right research so that we can get the right help. And also the acknowledgement that there are long haul diseases. I, I feel like a lot of physicians say, well, you've had antibiotics, uh, you know, you're cured, but to really acknowledge what patients are going through when you wake up sick every day and have to go about living in a normal life and, and the stigma associated with that too. It's such an unraveling of other diseases, I think, because as we all know, something that's um, a family, extended family member uh, recently just got diagnosed with, um, this is just a for instance, but Hodgkin's lymphoma at 16 years old, stage four. Okay. Mm. You know, this kid has got, you know, an uphill battle. But as we all know, one of the leading causes that, that we've learned in science is Epstein-Barr. Well, you know, this is one of those viruses that may not be a direct co-infection of something like Lyme disease, but some of these people in this Epstein-Barr group who have had Hodgkin's lymphoma are also Lyme disease patients, diagnostically, you know, proven. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I challenge science and I challenge researchers and I challenge patients even to be their own hero and advocate and, um, you know, send this message, learn from these um, books like Chris, Chris Newby's uh, Bitten and Under Our Skin movie and send it to your family members and uh, legislators and keep digging. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting so me. I haven't talked about the conflicts for a while, but uh, they're still there. <laughs> uh, last but not least, what else are you working on? <laughs> uh, I have a really uh, a fantastic article coming out on Bartonella, which is cat scratch fever. Great. Which is a, a co-infection of a lot of Lyme people. It's a patient's story, a 14-year-old boy who gets sudden psychosis and the whole medical establishment writes him off as uh, being having schizophrenia and you just need to institutionalize him for the rest of his life and keep him drugged up. And it was just about a really heroic dad who kept on pushing and just uh, found his way to uh, noticing the Bartonella tracks, which are look like cat scratches and uh, or stretch marks and making uh, his way to a diagnosis. And that child now is uh, successfully in college and doing great. So that was a fantastic story. So I hope that'll be coming out in a month or so. Also, uh, there, there's a very talented film producer, a couple of them working on making Bitten a TV series. 
Oh my God, that's so, amazing. Uh, yeah, so. Yay, uh, you. Yeah, I know. So hopefully that'll, getting a film out is really, really hard. I know. So hopefully that will see the light of day soon. That's fantastic. Congratulations oh, and a big fat hug for all the work that you do for patients. So uh, where can people buy your book for now? And I'm going to keep, uh, maybe we'll meet again later when your other stuff comes out with this series. We can talk about that as well, but where can people get your book now? So any place you buy books, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, from the publisher, HarperCollins. Uh, it's on audio and Kindle versions because I know a lot of Lyme people um, have trouble reading uh, the written word. <laughs> so Me too. Uh, and uh, of course, I always say support your local indie bookstores because we really don't want them to go away. Uh, yes. Uh, so that's, that's where to go. And then the film Under Our Skin is still available. Like I said, Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free. It's, it really, I think, does a good job of explaining the patient experience, uh, which is really important if you're trying to get your loved ones, your, your father-in-law, who's an infectious disease doctor, to understand what you're going through, right? <laughs> the after effects of the psychological impact um, with medical PTSD is watch for that one. That could be another whole series on the psychological effects of being told you're not sick and being mis you know, diagnosed and underdiagnosed for decades and decades, how um, children come from those homes feeling abandoned and traumatized by their own experience and sometimes have it themselves. We're not crazy. <laughs> We have an infection, you know, I was told to go work out. Well, I had a gym for 14 years. Uh, that didn't cure me. I was told, you know, uh, we don't understand why you have anxiety. Go do a year of psychological medication for anxiety and depression, along with a year of, you know, counseling. I started and I said, how long does this take? She said, I'd give it a year. So I said, okay, we're going to do it a year. For insurance to pay, I had to do both. I said, okay, once again, still didn't cure me. I got sicker, right? And then I couldn't function because those drugs, I can't tolerate a lot of that stuff. So yeah. I've done all this stuff that they say to go do, and it, it doesn't work. But getting yeah, to the root cause and a good diagnostic tool, that works. Right. Yeah. Early diagnosis, we don't have it of this long hauler disease and then better treatments. So you can manage it like AIDS patients, right? Or get rid of it. Yeah, yeah, I'll scale a wall. Will you scale a wall with me like the AIDS patients did and act up? I think that's the only thing I can think of we haven't done in the Lyme community is scale the wall to, what was it, the CDC did they? Yeah. What was that too? I think it was the CDC, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's crazy, it's crazy talk. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not scaling a wall. <laughs> I hope your husband continues to heal and that you guys both stay well and God bless y'all. Well, thanks. And thank you for going above and beyond and helping patients. So I appreciate that. I have my own website with pictures from my book. If you want to look at the crazy cold war bioweapons experiments and that's www.chrisnewby.com. You have a great rest of your day. Hey, and thanks you again too. for your time, Chris. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. -bye. Bye.